I've been gone. I, I've been out of the pulpit for a couple of weeks. Um, we had John Guest uh, two weeks ago, and then the bishop last week, and and then finally I kind of get back here. I've been up since five o'clock this morning, you know, drinking coffee and ready to go. So um, if I get going really fast, just you know, slow down, you know. When I first went to Kentucky years ago, I had this uh, this lady in my church who was from Alabama, and. People from Alabama, they talk really slow for people who are like me, who were from way up north. And, and she said to me one day, she said, I was at the bank the other day, and they said, how do you like your new preacher? And she said, I told him, we like him just fine, but we are going to have to get used to that Yankee accent. And so, um, you know, that, that speed and accent, if, it, if I get going too fast, just slow me down. If you've lived past the second grade just past the second grade, you've been around long enough to see that there are people in this world who are immoral, indecent, unkind, selfish, deceitful, all those sorts of things, and who yet seem to prosper. It seems like everything they do, they they wind up on the sunny side of life. You think to yourself, how is this possible? How is it possible that no matter what they do, no matter what they seem to, um, to mock about religion, they, they, they seem unwilling to help other people, they, as I said, they're self-centered and selfish, and yet they seem blessed. It's not right. It's wrong. Whatever sort of luck or you know, um, karma or uh, the universe system of justice, this doesn't seem to fall out. I mean, they seem to thrive even though they shouldn't. And if you've lived past the second grade, you've seen the other side too, haven't you? The other hand, where there are people who are decent and good and gentle and kind and selfless, who help others, who care about the world and they care about the, the, uh, the, the, their neighbors, they care about all sorts of good things. They do good. They are good. You've seen these sorts of people who suffer. You know, people who are involved in awful automobile accidents or get horrific diseases or their company collapses. Or, they seem to be the people who are, who are good. And again, the whole luck and karma and universe system of justice doesn't work out for them. What's wrong here? Why is it that, that, that good things happen to bad people and, and bad things happen to good people? This isn't the way things are supposed to be. There's no rhyme or reason, no discernible pattern. I know. I believe that God hears and answers prayer. I know that. I'm a clergyman for crying out loud. Of course I know that. I've given my whole life to believing in that. In my first year of being a minister, I was, um, I was a pastor of a small country Methodist church. I went to a Methodist seminary. And um, the Methodists had like 2,000 churches in Kentucky. 2,000 churches in the state of Kentucky alone. If you had a pulse and you believed in God, they would give you a church. And, um, and so they gave me one. And it was like you went out to the middle of nowhere and turned left and went another couple of miles and you went into it, right? And so this little church, the Grassy Lick Methodist Church... You know you're in the country when your church is called the Grassy Lick Church, right? Okay, so, so here I am, way up, first year that I'm a minister. One of my parishioners, a, young, a man named Doug, he was about, um, he was about 55, I suppose, uh, got sick one day, all of a sudden. 
um, got uh, some kind of um, uh, pneumonia that uh, that turned into an infection, and next thing I know, he was in uh, in the St. Joseph Hospital on a ventilator. He was septic. He, he, the, it, it was really bad. I remember that summer, the doctors calling people in and saying, look, he's probably not going to make it through the night. The same summer, the same summer, the same parish, Donna Bailey goes in the hospital right down the road from St. Joseph Hospital at the Samaritan Hospital in Lexington, Kentucky. And, and here I am driving from the middle of nowhere down to St. Joe's to see, to see Doug and his family and, and then down the road from there to see Donna and her family. And I was in the hospital at Samaritan Hospital one evening, late in the evening, and, and the doctors came to Bill Bailey, her husband, and her father-in-law and some other people who were there, and they said, Look, Donna's probably not going to make it through the night. You need to bring in the family and um, whoever else needs to come and see her uh, because this is probably her last night. I don't know what you're supposed to do. I hadn't had that class in seminary where what you're supposed to do when a doctor comes in and says that sort of thing. So I didn't know. I just thought I would do the only thing that you could do. In both those situations, I said, let's pray. And we did. We gathered around. I wasn't even really sure how to pray. So I prayed like this. Our Father. <laughs> you, know, you know this prayer? Yeah, this is the one that, that I prayed. We, and we did. Um, I went back to, uh, to Kentucky just the last month. So four weeks ago, I was back there. I did a wedding for um, a, a young girl. She was just a child. I baptized her about 13 or 14 years ago. It had been 10 years almost to the day that I left Kentucky. I went back to do her wedding. And so Sunday, I got to go into church. It's nice when you go into a little country church, you know, in the middle of nowhere. They just stopped what they were doing. We were late because we forgot how long it took to get out there. And, and we were late. We go in late. And they just stopped. They just, and, and we just got mobbed in the back of the church. They decided to just to move the passing of the peace to the beginning of the service instead of the middle. And so that people were, were all gathering around us. Doug Morris walks up to my left. And Donna Bailey walks up from my right. You know, I believe, I believe in all my heart that God hears and answers prayer. But I've also been around situations where, you know, the doctor said, it's probably not going to make it through the night, and it didn't. You know, I've done enough funerals to, to know that there are families who grieve and, and, and who question why, and I have no answer for them. Uh, that, that there are times where, where it doesn't seem to make sense. That is the story of the book of Job. Did you hear the lesson, the book of Job this morning? Did you hear it? There's this man, his name is Job. He's a good man. He is an exceptionally good man. He is the best man in the entire country. That's what the Bible says about him. He's not just a good fellow. He is an exceptional chap. You know, I thought I'd break into a little John Guest there. He's an exceptional guy. He's unusually good. He's universally regarded as the best man in the entire area. Look at what it says about him. Take your bulletin, will you? And look with me at the Old Testament lesson. Job, chapter 1, verse 1. That is in the lesson, isn't it? Chapter 1, verse 1. Is that where we begin? 
Yes, nod, somebody. <laughs> Thank you, Valerie. I saw that nod. All right. There was a man in the land of Uz whose name was Job. The man was blameless and upright, who feared God and turned away from evil. If you had a pencil, you could underline all those modifiers, couldn't you? He was blameless. He was blameless. The, the, the word means perfect or complete. It, it means um, wholesome, morally innocent. There is not a thing that you could say bad about this fellow Job. He was blameless. He was completely innocent. He was upright, straight, level. Dale likes to work with wood. He'll get this one. He's like a board that's true. Have you ever seen, if you ever work with wood, and you, you, these guys who work with wood, I fake it. Like, I know what I'm doing. I don't. But they, they take this board and they, they, they look down the end of it. Have you, you ever seen guys who do that? They look down, you ever do that, Dale? You look down the end of a, Look right down the end of a board. Straight ones. Sometimes you'll see ones that kind of got a big old bow in them. Or sometimes they're kind of crooked like that. They kind of are warped. We even use that language. That guy, he's a crooked fellow. <laughs> and you know what that means, don't you? You know what it means when we say somebody's crooked. Somebody's warped. Somebody's untrue. Job is not like that. He is true. He is straight. He is upright. He fears God. Now, this doesn't mean that he's terrorized by God. It's not like he, he goes around and says, Oh no, God's coming around the bend. You know, He doesn't do that. He's not afraid of God. He fears God. He reveres God. He, he, takes, God's, he takes his religion seriously. This fellow Job does. And he turns away from evil. The word here, to turn away, sheer in Hebrew, it means to cut off. It's used some places in Hebrew to refer to beheading. <laughs> it's cutting it off. Job has nothing to do with evil. Now, if anyone, listen to me, if anyone deserves special treatment, it's this guy, isn't it? You know, like some of you, you know, you talk to me, and I think that people do this generally. They have a high regard for clergymen. That's, that's, that's a good thing. You know, I kind of like that. But I'm not like Job at all. In fact, I wouldn't describe myself in any way like this fellow. You know, I know all my flaws and weaknesses. I know all my bends and curves and things that aren't quite right. I'm not, I don't know very many people that are like Job. If anybody deserves special treatment from God, it's this guy. Well, what you didn't hear this morning in chapter 1 is this. Now, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan came along with them. And the Lord said to Satan, from where have you come? Satan answered, you said, this sounds like chapter 2, it does, but it's different. Stay with me. Satan answered the Lord and said, from going to and fro about the earth and from walking up and down on it. The Lord said to Satan, have you considered my servant Job, that there's none like him on the earth, a blameless and upright man who fears God and turns away from evil? Second time we heard this, right? Satan answered, Does Job fear God for no reason? Have you not put a hedge around him and his house and all that he has on every side? You've blessed the work of his hands and his possessions have increased in the land. Stretch out your hand, touch all that he has, and he will curse you to your face. We found out just before this that Job is a rich man. 
he has he has seven thousand sheep, three thousand camels, five thousand or five hundred yoke of oxen, five hundred female. He is he has very many servants. Job is a rich, rich fellow. But get this, Satan says, "I'll make you a bet, God. Here's here's my bet: take away all his stuff, take away his stuff, and he will curse you to your face." Job doesn't know this is going on. Only we know it. Somehow the writer takes us up into the chambers of heaven and we hear this offer. God, I'll make you a bet, Satan says. I'll bet I can get this fellow Job to curse you to your face. All you have to do is take away his money. Take away his money and he'll, he'll, he'll fall like a house of cards. He'll, he'll be, give me another metaphor. He'll be down quicker than you. It'd be like, you know, walking into a ring with Mike Tyson. They'll knock him out right now. And God says, I'll take that bet. And guess what? Job lost everything he had, including his children. And he didn't curse God to his face. What we heard this morning was bet number two. Satan comes back. All right, all right. So Job's a little tougher than I gave him credit for. But you know what? Anybody will give every penny for their health. Here's what you do. Give him some incurable disease. And we'll see him. This will do him in. This will make him fall. And so God says, Job doesn't know this. You know it. I know it. People have known it for thousands. Job didn't know this. God says, I'll take that bet too. I'll take your double or nothing on Job. And so Satan inflicts him with boils from the bottom of his feet to the top of his head. So painful that Job took pots, uh, shears of, uh, of, of pottery, little broken pieces of glass, and would cut the sores open on his skin to get some relief. Job has some other assets. He has a wife and he has friends. He's fortunate more for the latter than the former because his wife comes along and says, oh, you are reckless. Just give up, you know. Just curse God and die. His friends at least have the decency to come and sit with him seven days before they say anything. They sit with him seven days in quiet, called sitting Shiva in, in, in Hebrew. People still do this today. Seven days, let's just sit and be silent. And at the end of the seventh day, they go on for about 38 chapters telling Job what a fool he is. You know, uh, at least his wife says it, you know, and could have done. They keep going on and on and on. And Job says, you know what, I'm not going to curse God. I don't know why this is happening. I don't know why I have to go through this. I don't know why I have to live in this sort of pain. But I'm not giving up on God. Today is Stewardship Sunday. Which seems like, you know, perhaps we should pick a different text and just talk about, you know, kind of lightly about the um, about issues of money and finances and all that sort of thing. But I don't think so. I think this is a perfect text to talk about stewardship because, you know what, Job is a picture of all of us. You know, in Job's day, I'm guessing he probably had the fastest camel, don't you? You know, I mean, and maybe you say to yourself, 
I don't have the fastest camel in my neighborhood. Um, you know, I'm sure Job had the best goats. Don't they make brie? Do they make brie from goat cheese? Is that, is that goat cheese? No, maybe. He had the best cheese, however you get it from goats. You know, um, he, 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 bring, he drank the best goat chocolate milk. You know, he, he lived large. Um, and you probably say, but you know, that's not really me. Well, it doesn't matter because you know what? That wasn't the most valuable thing Job had, was it? The most valuable thing he had was in his possessions because you took them all away and he was the same person. Even take away his health and he was the same person. He was confused. Nothing wrong with being confused. Lots of us get confused. But he didn't give up on God even when he had every reason to, if the only reasons he had to believe in God was because of his his material wealth. Take it away and he was the same person. You see, Job was a faithful manager of what was entrusted to him. That's what being a steward is, that, that God entrusts things to us and expects us to be faithful to manage them. There's this, this quote that Phil uh, came up with that, that found that, that says, the measure of a person is how much they'd be worth if they lost all their money. Nothing could be more true than that. The value that each of us has has nothing to do with the numbers in our checkbook. You know, I think that there are, though, some things that we can, we can learn about ourselves. Uh, one of my, um, my professors, Dr. Callis, used to say, there are three most important books in a person's life. The first one is their checkbook. <laughs> you know, it tells where we, what we value. I apparently value school lunches and the Internal Revenue Service because I spend a lot of my money running to them. But, you know, there are other things that we value, aren't there? I thought that was pretty funny. Uh, that we, that, yeah, thank you, Martin. Uh, yeah, that, that, that there are things that we value. And you can tell what we value in, in what we buy. You know, in, in where we spend our money. It, it matters what we do with it and how we manage it. But it's not the only thing. Uh, Dr. Callis also said, another important book that you have is your date book. Mine's in my phone, so it's not like written out anymore. You know, where do you spend your time? How do you, how do you spend your time and what do you do? The, the ways that we spend our time tell a lot about what kind of person we are. Uh, the other one is, um, is your entertainment book. You remember I used to get the, you ever get those little entertainment books like had these coupons in them, you know? You remember that? Like two, two steak dinners for the price of one? And kind of go through and get those uh, and go out and... Man, those are great. Fantastic. I don't even know if they still make them. Um, but I wonder, I wonder if you had one of those and it laid right next to, her, to this book, which one would be more used? You know, how do we spend our time how we spend our treasures, what do we do with our talents. These things tell us a lot about the sort of people that we are, the sort of value that we have. There's this, uh, there's this service that the, um, that the Anglicans, when they were called Methodists back in the 18th century, used to do. Uh, Methodism came out of, out of the Church of England. This, uh, this Anglican priest named John Wesley was the founder of Methodism. He wrote this prayer. He, they would do this every year. And here's the prayer. It goes like this. At the beginning of the year, January 1, they would have a covenant service. And they would have this service. They would, they would gather together and, and they would pray this prayer at the end of it. Praying to God and saying, I am no longer my own but yours. Put me to what you will. Rank me with whom you will. Put me to doing... 
put me to suffering. Oh my goodness. You know, I, I've, um, I've tried to work through this prayer several times. Every time I get to the put me to suffering, I think to myself, no, I, I don't want to do that. I shrink when I say put me to suffering. Let me be employed by you. Oh, I'm willing to do that. Or laid aside by you. Let me be exalted by you. Oh, that would be nice, wouldn't it? Or brought low by you. Let me be full. Let me be empty. Let me have all things. Oh yes, God. Bring them on, right? Let me have nothing. I freely and heartily yield all things to your pleasure and disposal. You know what? That's what a manager does, right? God, everything that you've placed in my life, my time, my treasures, my talents, my influence, I give it all back to you. Corey Tenboom, who suffered a lot in the Second World War, said, You know, I've learned to hold everything in my hand with an open hand, so it doesn't hurt so much when God pries my fingers off of them. That's what a steward does. Every year, um, Forbes puts out this list of the most successful Americans and what they're worth. Perhaps you've seen this from time to time. The sad thing is it's only in dollars and cents. See, the real value of a person, I think, the real value of a person is this. Are you the kind of person that God would bet on? Are you the kind of person that God would say, I'll take the double or nothing even? You see, I think, I think if we're that kind of people, then we are among all people the most valuable. Don't you? In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit.